listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I was at a funeral this past week for a friend from high school who had died of cancer. We'd played soccer together on the school team for MBCI. He rather more ferociously than me. And then in our 40s, we ended up on opposing teams in a men's league. A tireless competitor, he still played ferociously. And yes, his team won. The two of us were among the oldest players on the field, yet his play was instrumental in his team's victory that evening. I had to hang up my soccer boots back in 2007, my knees no longer able to take the game. At the funeral, there was a picture of my friend with his team from 2014 gathered around a championship trophy, no less. He was a strong, healthy guy. He had a carpe diem, seize the day kind of attitude to life. And yet there I was at his funeral. It was sobering, really. And it got me thinking about life and death, my life and my death. Over the years, I've often encouraged people to do some thinking about their own funerals. Last year, I even offered a planning workshop here at the church. What music would you want? What should we sing to bid you farewell? Who would you want to speak? What scripture readings would you like proclaimed that day? Not that I was telling people that they had to set everything in stone. I mean... The family might have some things they want included, but to leave some instructions is a good thing. What's more, the exercise of thinking through those questions, it's a really powerful one. Whether like me, you're 55 with bad soccer knees, or you're 85 or 25, what do you think would best mark the end of your life? Several years ago, I decided that the gospel reading I want proclaimed at my funeral is this parable from Luke, the prodigal son, or as Robert Capon called it, the father who lost two sons. It's probably a better title, actually. Jesus doesn't use the word prodigal, and it really is about two sons, both of whom have become lost to their father, though in starkly different ways. I'm powerfully aware that at different times over my life, I've wrestled with some lostness, and that in different ways I can relate to both of these sons, both the younger and the older. I'm also aware that the character of the father in the parable places a very real claim on us. And that at least from time to time, I've been given the grace to live in to that claim. You know the story, of course. It's about as familiar as Bible stories get. It's one of a series of three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, 
that Jesus tells in response to a complaint of the scribes and the Pharisees that he's been welcoming sinners and he's eating with them. Each of the three parables speaks to Jesus' desire that the lost, those whom his critics rather dismissively call sinners, that those lost be found. The lost sheep and the lost coin offer a kind of an implicit critique of the scribes and the Pharisees. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, he says, over one who was lost and has now been found. So drop your scruples, gentlemen, and get ready to rejoice with the angels that someone has come home, someone has been found. The parable of the lost sons offers a more explicit critique, one that faces down their self-righteousness and leaves them with a big question mark hanging over their religiosity. The besetting sin for both of those sons is pride. The younger son is self-centered and self-absorbed. He's bored with his life on the farm. He thinks he's ready to launch and to cut his own path. He thinks life would be more interesting out there somewhere. Father, he says, give me the share of the property that will belong to me when you die, my inheritance. And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the father does. A couple of days later, this all-too-self-assured young man hits the road. And as Jesus tells the story, he all too quickly squandered his property in dissolute living. We can only imagine. He ends up broke and having to take work as a, get the joke, a farm laborer of all things. The very thing he'd left behind. Worse, doubly humbling, galling even, is that a character in a Jewish parable is reduced to feeding the pigs. This, of course, is the moment that the younger son returns to his senses. How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And so... He begins his long, sorry walk home, presumably rehearsing that apology speech as he goes. You know that experience at all? You've done something, you've said something, you've wronged someone, you know you have to set it right. Whether it's a friend, a work colleague, a parent, a spouse, a partner, You know what you got to say, and you go over it and over and over and over it in your head before you actually go to them, desperately hopeful that those words will come out right. As he approached, his father looked up and saw him, and filled with compassion, he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And now the son launches into that rehearsed speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, the father doesn't even let him get it finished. Before the son can say, treat me like one of your hired hands, take me back as a servant, this father is putting the party into motion. And why? 
because he was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Now the part of the speech that the son did manage to get out before being smothered by his father's kisses is instructive. I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's a confession of guilt. Sense of guilt over something you've done isn't a bad thing, not at all. Guilt like that can move us to make amends, and to change, to reconcile, to start over. It can be a bit of a teacher, in fact. Your conscience pushes you to an uncomfortable place, and that's the moment you can actually begin to turn things round. It's the next statement that strikes to the heart of what the Son is bearing. I am no longer worthy to be called your Son. That's an expression of shame. If guilt is feeling badly about something we've done, shame is feeling badly about who we are, and it can be killer. Yet filled with compassion, that's the phrase Jesus uses, filled with compassion, the Father overrides both the guilt and the shame, and he reclaims the Son as his own. The noted author and speaker, Brene Brown, is convinced of the centrality of compassion in overcoming shame. Compassion, she notes, is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. In other words, while the father in this parable offers healing compassion into the life of his lost son... He does it not as a grand pronouncement from on high, but by standing face to face with him, in embrace with him, in fact, on level ground. If the besetting sin of the younger son is self-absorbed pride, the great gift of the father in the parable is offered precisely because he's not bound up in shallow pride. Not of the sort that would have had him put limits on forgiveness. Let the party begin. Cut to the older brother, who's just returned from the field to discover music and dancing. What's up with this? That no good brother of mine has come home? And our father is throwing a party? Count me out. But the father, who is, remember, compassionate comes out to the garden, comes out to the elder son to try to talk him inside. He's first run out to greet the younger son, and now here again he comes out, this time to seek the older. I've behaved, pouts the older son. I've behaved. He's devoured your property with prostitutes. I've worked like a slave. I've followed the rules. I don't get a party. Son, replies the father, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. You can't blame your puritanical workaholism on me, thank you very much. Don't you see? We had to celebrate. We had to rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. That's where the parable ends. As Jesus tells the story, it's to these scribes and Pharisees, remember, he's really saying, 
drop your self-righteousness, gentlemen, because the party is underway. Like the elder son, you are free to stay out in the garden sulking, but if you'd like me to pour you a drink, you'll need to sit down with me, right next to the ones you've just so confidently broad-brushed as sinners. And maybe they are sinners, but I'm finding them, and I'm raising them from the deaths of their own thin lives. I can do the same for you. What'll it be? Can I pour you a drink? I want this story read and preached at my funeral because I want to say that my own lostness, whether of self-absorption or self-importance or self-righteousness or self-whatever, has been overwritten and wiped clean by the compassionate grace of Jesus. In this I trust. My death is kept safe in the death of Jesus. My friend, his name was Vic, and he really was one heck of a soccer player. But that doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that he counted himself as being numbered among the sons and daughters of the divine parent, whose compassion and love is, by the standards of this world, the most prodigal thing of all. There was sorrow that day at his funeral, and his family still bears sorrow, I'm sure. But there is also deep, deep consolation, because he has been found. May his soul and the souls of all the departed rest in peace and rise in glory. Amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.